digital capacity for the arts. Thank you both. Um, obviously, institutions of very different size and scale, um, producing sort of a, a small amount of audio as, as a way of extending the, the, the brand and presence of, of a cinema that's turning itself into a combined art form venue versus a multimedia collaboration for one of the world's biggest and best respected broadcasters. So, but there are elements in common, I think, which is about extending the boundary of what seems to be possible about having to, to grapple with a number of issues that you might not sort of thought you had to face and about building audiences. Uh, and I think you've both sort of done that in various ways. As I'd like to start actually asking you, Dominic, about one question about that sort of the people you're working with. Have you had problems getting people, you know, say Mike Figgis, whatever, agreeing to work with you, asking about rights and brand and ownership, or do you do it, still do it relatively informally? <laughs> um, uh, we usually get people to sign to kind of sign their lives away, saying we own everything that they say and everything that they do, and nobody ever seems to have a problem with that. Um, yeah, so um, it is quite informal. It's quite jovial. There's, um, there's never been a problem. People want to get stuff out there, and if you're helping them get it out there, they're more than happy to kind of sign to agree for you to do that. I haven't yet had somebody say no. Um, okay, yeah. is, and, and Andrew, that's your experience, obviously. Everybody you talk to is perfectly willing to give you everything for nothing. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it is quite as easy as that. Uh, uh, and I think it's about a, there's about a maturity on all sides about, you know, what, what propriety exists over certain stuff. One experience we did have, though, with History of the World, and this perhaps was a sense in which things are changing, is that the BBC, if you contribute stuff to a BBC website, um, you actually sign up to some pretty uh, handed all over, we're going to do what we like with it kind of terms. Um, and we did worry about this, and certainly the museum world worried about this. We had 551 museums join in and take part and upload stuff onto the, onto the site. Only one questioned the terms. Now that may be because the other 550 didn't read them. Um, but I think that's probably not the case. I think some things are starting to change. Um, and, the, and the one lesson I think is by you know, putting that up front, uh, and, and trying to have the conversation really on, early on, accepting that there are things that people want to own and that they will be theirs. We don't have this property. But I think in general, that there, is, there is a slight loosening going on. But that question mark that I put on the slide about, you know, it's easy when it's all in the public service and nobody's making any money and we all need to make money, how we're going to get over that is, is a challenge. It, it sounds like from what Dominic says, you're not going to make any money anyway, so, you know, why bother? I mean, sort of, before I, I throw it out, is there any prospect of you generating revenue? Do you really want to, is one question. Or maybe, I don't know if Mark's in the room, we can have an answer about that. No, oh, I, can, I, can, uh, I can be, um, I can, you know. Tell us about the money. Yeah, so um, is there a potential to make money from the content that we produce? Um, I kind of see the, the stuff that we're doing around the broadcast, etc., as a way of uh, kind of refining our audience. Uh, our audience already exists, it already comes, uh, and it's just about more closely addressing what they want. Um, now, I'm kind of here in a kind of slight troublemaker role I'm in the cinema. That my job is to kind of mess things up a little bit and kind of experiment. So this is one of the many experiments I've been doing, uh, and I kind of see this 
this is a kind of being um, a way of kind of carving the taking a block of marble and that already has a sculpture in it and removing the excess marble to find the sculpture. And just hoping it's an angel. And just hoping, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the only other thing I'd say about the, the BBC in that regard is is um, the BBC being very big and seeming very powerful and seeming so, you know, the roots of nirvana of massive, of massive distribution of your stuff may mean not asking the question. And I think that people should ask questions of the BBC in this regard and say, actually, does that work or doesn't it work? Is that fair or is that not fair? You're enti as entitled to ask those questions of the BBC as anybody else, with how, however big or small an organisation you are. So, ask that question, or indeed any other questions you may have. Um, who wants to go first? Not you. Okay, then go on. Eddie Morgan from the BBC will go first. To inspire the others. Hi, everyone. I'm Eddie Morgan. I work at the BBC. Thanks for coming. I, from, from Peter's presentation, from Andrew's presentation, you, you got the view that partnering with the BBC, if you're lucky enough to do that, is powerful and potent, and you should have try and do that. Um, but can you both say more about, if you can't partner with the BBC, what you should aim to do? And here's the loaded part of the question. Isn't there something about simplicity? So at the heart of history of the 100 worlds and 100 objects was Neil McGregor talking very simply and eruditely about ob objects. And the Commode Mayo BBC Philharmonic, again, was very simple. They just introduced some music and played along with it. And if you can't partner with the BBC, and if you can't access linear audiences and Radio 4 and BBC One and so on, is there merit in trying to be as simple as possible in what is a very confusing world? The joy of simplicity. <laughs> Dominic, yeah, you're, a, you're a simple man. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of, to explain, I, I mean, coming here and doing the broadcast stuff isn't the first time I've done this. Uh, to kind of explain a little bit more, uh, for years I was kind of involved in uh, kind of the, the kind of less legitimate side of uh, getting content out there, uh, and it's How delicately it, put. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a very straightforward process, you know. And uh, to be honest, people are already doing this. People are already putting stuff out there, and that is, in certain respects, what's driving the legitimate aspects of what we're doing. We are kind of playing catch up with a lot of those uh, groups, a lot of those people. Um, I mean, to look at, for example, to look at pirate radio, let's just say. Um, a lot of the styling and a lot of the behavior of pirate radio uh, fed uh, the kind of the mainstream radio. Um, so that's kind of some of the, possibly some of the experience I may be bringing with me to this post. Um, and uh, what I can see is important in terms of simplicity is to build a very uh, simple infrastructure within an organization because you'll be coming here and we haven't got uh, an uh, somebody who's paid to be a broadcaster here. We've got some enthusiastic members of front of house. We've got somebody in the bar who really likes music. We've got somebody who is really knowledgeable about films and wants to talk about films. So what I kind of see my role as well is acting as a conduit and making that possible and kind of uh, lubricating that process. The uh, simple answer to your question is yes. Uh, I, I think it is. I think the other simple question uh, as to is it worth it, I think we should all start simple. My, my point about the crowded space um, is that you don't cut through it with very, very multi-dimensional stuff. Um, and I think the point that, that you made really eloquently is that we're all potential broadcasters now. Um, and that's quite challenging for the BBC in, in a good way. 
uh, that we don't have to have a huge infrastructure. And the, and the one danger is to be a bit like the child when they first learn how to do PowerPoint, which is that they change the color of every letter and everything zooms in from lots of different directions and it all gets terribly excited. And they're very excited about what they can do and you can't actually work out what it is they're trying to say and that's fine. And I think making it as simple and as clear as possible, you will do it better by doing it small to start with um, rather than almost the temptation is the BBC, they're very big. Look how complicated some of the things they do are. We must try to do something like that. If anything, I would go the opposite way. Well, it's interesting because in your presentation, you said that the, the original front end for the History of the World website was flash-based, interactive, all the objects zooming in and out, and you had to try to grab the one you... And that well, you really liked that. <laughs> but, 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 but I'm a terminal geek. Yeah, I'm not your target audience. Yeah. Uh, I did, uh, but people didn't seem to. Or rather, when you changed it to something which was flatter and simpler and just about the proposition, traffic went up. Yeah, and people just found it easier to navigate. This is the bit I need to go to. I want to find that program on that day. We still had the Flash interface, but we didn't make it the, the first thing you come to, which makes the whole thing look terribly intimidating. And I think if you, you know, just in, for those of you who are sort of web design geeky bits, if you look at some of the newer things the BBC is producing with its new sort of visual language, if anything, that's got sort of bigger, bolder, bigger buttons, fewer things on a page. I mean, some of those lessons um, have had to be learned in the BBC that these sort of complicated multi-layered pages just don't really work. And I think that's true for um, some of the other projects that we do. Just ask a simple question of yourself. Okay, and who'd like to answer a simple question of these simple people? Uh, there in the middle. Thanks, Tamar Millen, Community Media Association. I just wanted to sort of add into that last that last bit uh, that there is a middle ground between sort of pirate radio and uh, the BBC, and that is the community media sector. Yep. There are over 200 uh, community radio stations in this country now who are, I've actually been working for two years to try and get arts organisations working closely with them. So don't think that that's the only model. Um, I've loved what you've you've put up, but it's not the only model. There are community radio stations that are really interested in arts content. Uh, I mean, can I ask you then, um, so do you say interested in, in arts material, what ways do you work with arts organisations? What are you actually offering them? Um, there's there's uh, developing uh, creative content together. I'm, I'm launching a, a report next week which looks at four commissions we've done, which is between arts organisations and the community radio stations. So that was there's new content. There's there's all of them do the typical sort of what's on, um, but we're talking about moving on a bit further, looking at that creative content, looking at the spectrum that they've got, the airways they've got, being part of public access. Um, so these arts organisations here being able to develop and create their own pro programmes. Okay, thank you. Do we have another question or another comment that anybody would like to make around this? Yeah, down here at the front. Um, I'm just wondering whether you think that uh, digital can actually be reductive, especially around aggregation, and we forget about the accidental, the fortuitous, happy accident when people just trip across something, whether actually we sometimes think we narrow our focus when we go too much digital. It's a huge, that's a huge question. Um, you know, in BBC terms, you know, to curate, to not curate, um, you know, to edit the, the the BBC inclination is always to is to edit and is to rank and is to tell people what they, you know, what we think is the important thing. And I think the BBC does have a role in that. And I think the BBC definitely has a role going forward in terms of curating things. Um, I think in in many ways the 
this is going to get really techy and nerdy. Um, you know, the algorithm is probably the most reductive thing of all. You know, the, the thing that, that simply tells you what you want based on what you did yesterday. It doesn't tell me what, I'm, what I might want to do today or what I might want to do tomorrow. Um, and I think we have to be really, I mean, this is on the, uh, on the big scale, we have to be really concerned if we're simply creating products uh, that only do that. Uh, there is a role for the curator, for the, for the editor, uh, and there is a role, my point about um, navigation, uh, there is a role for making it easy to, for people to find the thing they want to find, rather than always just simply finding it for them. So what we did with the History of the World was we said, how are we going to order this up to 10,000 objects? And we had all kinds of interesting things we talked about. We attempted to develop a thing, you'll like this, this will work well on Twitter. Um, we tried to create a thing called the algorithm of interestingness. And we tried to work on the basis of, by people's activity around these objects, will we be able to put to the front of what was a sort of tunnel uh, the most interesting stuff, deemed most interesting by our users? And we miserably failed, and it was far too complicated. And what we ended up with was um, time, uh, if you're doing something history, the one thing that people do in history is they know how to travel through time. We then gave them lots of other ways to navigate if they wanted to, but the default ended up being time, um, which was probably simpler and easier. Yeah, but, but it's, it's the process of thinking, thinking out loud about it and coming to what looks like an obvious answer, but it's only an obvious answer because you explored the problem space. And I think it's far too easy for any of us to, to dive into the capabilities of digital, do some things, and then retrospectively try to justify it. It is good to have had the, the conversation around it in advance. I mean, would you agree, Dom? Um, it's quite that was a large question, and it's possibly more suited for the BBC, which has more content than I would. <laughs> um, but uh, I suppose if people are going to have happy accidents and find new things, then it, I could say it's my job uh, curatorially to support artists to make new things for people to find. That was um, simple. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, it's a question at the back. In fact, it's Marcus Roma at the back. So think hard before he starts asking. You were feeling intimidated earlier, Dominic. It was, yeah. <laughs> Not at all. Thank you for that. Um, I would say I just like the idea of dirty radio, and obviously we've had through Dominic some dirty cinemas obviously happening here. <laughs> I, I'm interested in making dirty theatre, but how can we encourage <laughs> arts organisations... You might want to rephrase that. <laughs> how can we encourage arts organisations to make that dirty stuff and actually to mess it up a bit, a little bit, to actually make the content come. How do we need to get down and dirty to make the stuff that actually crosses over all the stuff that you're talking about? Because are our, our arts organisations in that space and you think ready? And if not, what do we need to do? Okay, I don't know how you approach that as you will. Uh, feel <laughs> free to challenge his premise. Um, no, no, that's okay. Um, how, your question is how do we kind of make more dirty things in the arts? Um, I think it goes back to the element of risk, being prepared to take risk, and feeling safe to take those risks, and managing those risks, um, and more chaos, encourage a bit more chaos, controlled chaos, uh, people you trust to go to the brink and back. I don't know. Uh, 
what about the, in which case, what's the role of technology in that process? Because it's interesting, we've had a couple of comments on Twitter I noticed pointing out that senior managers of the BBC seem to know what they're doing except when it comes to yeah. advanced technology. And I was defending Andrew saying he's quite fine with his own computer, but do you doing a display in a place like this is tricky. And someone else saying, well, the resolution on the screen wasn't great. Well, that's because you're running in a cinema off a laptop. So taking the risk by having the convenience, putting people into awkward situations, you do get something which has that element, but then people criticize it. Should we be you relying on the technology to make things smooth underneath so we can be dirty on top and risk-taking on top? Or are we risk-taking throughout the stack? Yeah, the stack's an interesting metaphor, actually, because I was just about to say the, uh, the kind of standard things to put the technology at the end of the process, whereas it actually sits very comfortably in the middle of the process. And what we're talking about here is venues as well, and places, physical spaces that we're talking about. Um, and it's a way of kind of how do you let new things in? How do you let encourage more participation in the process of, of the development process? And that's where technology sits very well and very comfortably in kind of uh, throwing kind of curveballs and encouraging kind of new process. It's quite a difficult one for the BBC. In the end, the BBC you know, is, is publicly funded and it's, has a. You have to put quality first, Andrew. and we have to put quality first, which was somebody, which was one of the recent um, inform, educate, and entertain was replaced. But anyway, uh, put quality first was was one of the, th and, and 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 to an extent, there is a role for that. I, I suppose what is interesting about this kind of gathering and others is how do we, how does the BBC best encourage people who are starting. How do we best work with community radio? How do we best work in, in local areas? How do we best work in education to enable the risk takers and indeed the innovators of the future, uh, of, of, the, of the current period, to become innovative in a mass market? And what, how will the digital space help us to do that? And at the simplest level, the reason why I'm interested in, in what we did with participation and history of the world was we said to people, take a photograph of your object, tell your, write a story in a hundred and, how, how many words was it, Jane? I can't remember. Thank you. 150, 150 words telling us why your object uh, contributes something to the history of the world. You do that. You create that content. Um, not very many people produced a haiku, but it would have been interesting if they had. Not, people tended to play by our rules, which is perhaps a fault on, on our part. Um, but I think we do have a role in encouraging those innovators. But I think we also have a role in making the platform really simple. Um, and I think we do have a role in showcasing the stuff that is really good that we think lots of people will want to consume. Somebody's got to do that somewhere. I think, I think that's a really important point. And in a sense, the reason why today we're talking about audio and audiovisual material is because, uh, as I said at the start, the technology makes it now simple to produce something and it makes it possible to open a channel to audiences. How you decide what to produce, the quality of what you produce, the ways in which you reach the audiences and whether you get to the audiences are all bigger, broader questions which we're trying to address. And I think it's interesting that in the conversation we've had so far, there is an assumption that this stuff can be done, that yeah, making it is not that hard if you want to do it. It's everything that surrounds that that poses difficult questions for the organisations and institutions. Yeah, and there's not an awful lot of point in making stuff if you haven't got some kind of plan about how anybody might find it or consume it, or might even want to. You know, there is still a responsibility for most of us, however we're funded as organisations, to work out whether the, whether the, the, 
the work, whether dirty or clean, is worth doing on the basis of whether anybody might want it. Um, risk, uh, Helen Bowden, who's now director of um, BBC News, um, you know, she, al she always used to say when asked about, you know, why don't you allow more risky programs on Radio 4, which is controlled on Radio 4. Risk is not entirely an end in itself. We can't just praise ourselves for taking risks. Though in, in the creative industries, it's pretty important to have some people taking some risks somewhere, otherwise we'll just all become incredibly dull. You know, Kenny Everett, in, you know, in my business, you know, Kenny Everett was one of the great innovative risk takers, you know, who in some ways changed popular music radio forever. You know, no Kenny Everett, no Chris Moyles. Oh, some of you might say, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, what a shame there was Kenny Everett. But you get my, you get my meaning. <laughs> No, no. Don't, don't tweet that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and it's true. And that, and that earth-shattering site, um, A History of Surrey in 100 Breakfast Cereals, nobody remembers that, but they do remember your success. Marcus wants to come back. Can we give him back the microphone? Uh, I just wanted to raise a question on Twitter about... Um, about um, licenses and around IP and all of that sort of thing. Is this Lucy's point about yes, copyright? Yes, it is. I was yeah. going to raise that as well. I was just one of the things I've just sort of tweeted back around the fact of Creative Commons. There's a really interesting debate around being publicly funded. You're the publicly funded BBC and so are we as arts organisations, those who receive Arts Council money. The question I always have is who does that work belong to and who is it made by? So therefore, can we not open up the debate around Creative Commons and licensing and all those sort of things that we have to make in terms of Lawrence Lessig's uh, work around remix and around all of that stuff, that we need to really open up that debate to make this content truly shareable and truly attributable and truly public content that's been paid for by the public. Okay, yes we will. First, is everybody here familiar with Creative Commons as a licensing regime for copyright works? Anybody not? Anybody who'd like a quick 30 seconds? You'd like a quick 30 seconds. Okay, so Lawrence Lessig was a law professor at Stanford who thought he was training lots of lawyers and they were all getting jobs and they shouldn't. So he wanted to make less work for lawyers in the copyright realm by coming up with a series of simple licenses that you could assign to your work to make it clear what people could do with that work, whether they were required to attribute it to you, whether they could remix it, whether they needed to pay you for, your, for the use. You fix the license to the work, you then don't need to ask a lawyer about it. The whole project is called Creative Commons. It's been running just over 10 years. It's an attempt to fix copyright by using copyright has been very successful, has some issues. It's an approach to licensing that requires people to assert copyright very strongly and then to issue a license which allows people to do things freely. There's a version of Creative Commons called CC0, which essentially is the equivalent of putting something in the public domain, but isn't quite. The BBC does not use Creative Commons because it finds it there are various problems about the way the BBC is funded that would make it difficult, but many institutions do. It's one approach to rethinking copyright to allow greater sharing and greater reuse of material, not just in the creative sector, but in the world generally. So, Marcus's question, should we be embracing things like that more? I, I don't speak for BBC rights, okay? <laughs> and BBC's business affairs. And I think, okay, I think there's a lot of things that the BBC creates, a lot of programs that, that we create, that we don't own the whole of. We don't own uh, um, everything that everybody does on the BBC, even though we are able to broadcast what they do for the BBC for free. That doesn't necessarily mean that we own everything they do. And actually, if we wanted to own everything that they do, um, then we wouldn't be able to create very many things. Um, so it's a simple equation on one level. 
Um, on another level, is it possible to take some of those ideas and with some of what we do, um, try to see what would happen if that was our starting point? Uh, and I think that's where the world may be changing. And some of the work that you're doing, Bill, around digital public space um, is starting to edge us into the idea that the BBC is a participant in the public square, in the, in the digital public space. Um, some of the work the British Museum has done, you know, the British Museum won the art prize. The money, the money it won for the Art Fund Prize for History of the World has all gone into how can they get their objects around the UK into other spaces, other museums and sharing things and so forth. So these, are, these ideas are becoming, I, I, I would say, are rising up the agenda, but I don't think they're quite as simple. My colleague Jane Ellison works for partnerships in the BBC and was the commissioning editor for, for History of the World. Do you want to dive in you've now, got Jane? Some thoughts on this, Jane. Jane was the commissioning editor for History of the World. Yes, um, I do have some thoughts on this because uh, it was actually one of the most difficult aspects of uh, our whole negotiation with the British Museum. And uh, I just make three points about it. Firstly, I think it was incredibly brave and bold. You want to talk about risk-taking for the British Museum to allow 100 objects presented by their director to be podcast all around the globe with no restrictions whatsoever. Uh, and the first thing I would say is in, in all this you need to decide up front that you're going to do it. And they decided up front they were going to do it. Once that was decided, uh, they were very generous in allowing us to use uh, the visuals, the video, uh, the pictures of the objects on the website. And they decided up front that this was going to be open, as, a pro as open as we could possibly make it. There was a commercial negotiation, but that came much later. And the reason we got into a commercial negotiation around books and CDs was not actually because we'd started there, but because there were so many publishers and so many listeners coming back saying, we want to purchase. We'd like to get hold of this CD. I know very old-fashioned, but there are still people who want it on their bookshelves. Very quaint, but they do exist. And as far as the book was concerned, there were a lot of people who wanted to actually own something of the content. So that transition back from the virtual world into the physical world, I think, motivated some of the sales. On uh, that, the boldness of that vision from the beginning, from the British Museum's perspective, actually more than for ours, from ours, I think it's very important. The second is I'm not sure we could have done quite what we did if it hadn't been radio, which is why I'm so interested in you talking about radio in a visual, in a, in a visual space. Because with radio, we were able to find, it was much easier to get around some of the, the rights issues, the third party issues, because you didn't have to negotiate quite so much about the pictures. And I'd say, as a starting point, radio was extremely good as a medium in this context. So that's my plug for radio. Thanks. I mean, do you want to add anything into that, Dominic? Yeah, I have to confess to have just submitted a PhD thesis on this subject, so I could get quite excited about it, so I'll have to <laughs> kind of cool my boots a bit on it. Go. Um, go, okay. One of the really interesting things that I've found in my research on open source in the arts is that it's not just a way of protecting rights, it's a framework for collaboration. That license provides a way for you to interact with somebody else's work uh, and it sets out the ground rules for doing so, encouraging participation and collaboration. And that's one of the strongest uh, aspects of Creative Commons and other open source style licenses, just to be very kind of simple on that on that matter. Thank you. That, that, um, is, is Lucy actually in the audience here with us? Where? Good. Um, so you say you, 
uh, following on from that, you're talking about particularly for visual artists on Axis Web Art Yorkshire and trying to, you said, altering the mindset that artists have about imagery and content. Uh, if we get the microphone to you, could you clarify that slightly in the, in the couple of minutes we've got left? Uh, yeah, it's just I'm just noticing that there's actually artists are getting tighter about the use of their images. Um, and it is really interesting, that comment about radio and visual. I've just produced a series of content for the Art in Yorkshire Supported by Tate programme. And um, when I was working on the video content, I had real problems with licensing issues and DACs and the individual artists and estates and galleries and I could go on for a long time. Um, if I wanted to do audio podcasts, no problem at all. No one cared. I could do whatever I wanted, say whatever I wanted. Um, and it was just carte blanche. It was fantastic. Um, but actually the audience tend to want the videos and not the audio podcasts. So actually they're a lot harder to punt out. But just in general, having an awful lot of trouble getting artists to um, beyond a certain stage in their careers to allow you to use imagery of their work or even to produce content about them without their permission. Very quickly, I mean, you can sort of understand it. It is what, we've, what the digital space has created is something which makes sharing your things much easier. So therefore, people worry about their ability their, th to make a living. You know, and even, even with the BBC, you know, if you take uh, a song by Mitch Benn, on the Now Show, um, if everybody can have it, download it, keep it, share it with their friends, that song, next time he wants to play it at a gig, is an old song. Um, whereas if you just heard it on the radio once and then it's gone. So even for, even for us, the assumption that it's all publicly funded so you can have it all and put it there does start to get more complicated. And it may be that we have it's almost become too easy. But I also think that the train's left the station, folks, and we've just got to find other ways uh, um, of ensuring that uh, people can make a living uh, by creating wonderful things. I think there's probably a, an additional layer of complexity in terms of visual arts because the content we're talking about tends to be just a representation of the thing rather than the thing itself. So you're not actually sort of taking the whole work and representing it, you're just presenting an image of it um, or maybe a clip of it or something like that. And, and isn't it interesting how for all the music sharing that there is, for all the Spotify's and so forth, there is, there is the growth of live and of live performance and people want, you know, I mean, one of the things I often say in these kind of presentations is don't underestimate the sense of shared event, liveness, being able to be somewhere all at the same time to do things. You know, this, everything that we're talking about today doesn't replace that. Um, and that includes, you know, visual art as much as anything else. Thanks, Andrew. Do you want to make a final comment, Dominic? Because then we're going to have to comment. wrap up. Um, well, um, the oldest form of open source is kind of two cavemen standing in a cave. One of them's painting a bison, and he kind of nudges the one next to him and says, hey, "What do you think about this?" And he goes, "Great bison." And uh, he learns how to do it. The next day, he's learned how to do something else in his painting of the bison. He nudges the original caveman, who learns how to improve his bison again. So there's kind of, uh, it's a process where it feeds innovation. And if we get too restrictive, and uh, then it kind of limits innovation in that respect. Yeah, and we need a balance. And many people looked at the Hargreaves report and thought there's stuff in there around rebalancing copyright in the interest of creative expression that can be very useful and which will clearly underpin a lot of the decisions that are made by all of you about the sorts of material you could commission, the sorts of things you could publish, the sorts of things you can work with. It's clearly a very, remains a very complex area where things are far from being resolved. 
Well, I'd like to thank Andrew Kaspar and Dominic Smith for their time, for the presentations. I hope they've been useful to you all. And we're going to call this session to an end, and I'm going to give you all some work to do in a minute. So thanks, guys. Don't forget to share and bookmark our podcasts. Video and audio is available from all our seminars and masterclasses at artscouncil.org.uk slash digital capacity. That's artscouncil.org.uk slash digital capacity. Building digital capacity for the arts. You've been listening to a podcast download from Arts Council England and BBC Academy.